I believe we have entered a new regime. The period ahead of us will be characterized by higher and more volatile inflation, which will be in stark contrast to the 40 years which preceded COVID. In this presentation, I will seek firstly to put that 40 year period in historical context and discuss why disinflation was so favorable for asset owners. Secondly, I'll set out what I see as being the inflationary drivers of more persistent inflation over the long run. And finally, I'll consider the portfolio implications and share what history can tell us about the impact of inflation volatility on traditional asset classes. As J.R.R. Tolkien said, the world is changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. Much that once was is lost. It's important that we do not underestimate the significance of the changes which have occurred in recent years. 2023 really is a far cry from the benign market environment which we all operated in just a few years ago. The disruption caused by COVID acted as an accelerant to existing underlying trends, a shift from monetary policy towards fiscal policy dominance, and a swing from capital to labour in terms of who gets the economic spoils. But COVID and its aftermath also acts as a hangover haze, obscuring investors' view from what the world really looks like now. I think from a political, economic and market standpoint, the benign world that we lived in pre-COVID is not coming back. This simple diagram shows the journey which I think we're on. Yes, there will be oscillations to navigate along the way, but the inflationary destination remains clear. And over the course of this presentation, I'll set out why I think that destination is all but inevitable. This model of inflation volatility is important to bear in mind because we are currently in a disinflationary lurch. And as we see happening now, those investors who believe we are going back to the way things were, or team transitory, are keen to declare victory over inflation and have reached for their post-GFC investment playbook. Ultimately, I believe that will be a mistake. Putting the last regime of low and stable inflation into its historical context, this chart plots the average CPI inflation rate in the UK over 20 year periods on the x-axis and the volatility of that inflation on the y-axis, going all the way back to the 13th century. As you can see from the dark green dot at the bottom of the page, the period from 2000 to 2019 was anomalous. Inflation was low, but importantly, it was more stable than it has ever been. So let's consider the series of fortunate events that led to what has now become known as the Great Moderation. Coming out of the last inflationary period in the 1970s, the world enjoyed 40 years of an economic order where a series of supply-side shocks brought sustained disinflation. Globalization was obviously a key driver, bringing us cheap goods, cheap labor, and cheap energy. Combined, those forces kept inflation low, and that meant interest rates could be lower and risk premium were, com were compressed. This resulted in cheap capital. Not only did interest rates trend ever lower through this period, you'll note from the chart that they were ever less volatile, so much so that investors began to think, maybe, int maybe interest rates don't matter. Maybe inflation itself is dead. So it was a boon for asset owners. The rising tide of easy monetary policy and readily available capital really lifted all boats. And you can see how asset prices have dislocated from economic growth with the gap widening between the green and blue lines since the early 1990s. 
As an investor throughout this period, the mantra was buy and hold and buy the dip. Better still, own some bonds, as they have a nice offset for stocks when the markets go into a tailspin. This is because investors benefited from the predictability of the monetary policy reaction function in a disinflationary world. When deflation is the prevailing economic threat, policymakers are quick to intervene to support markets and avoid disaster. Of course, this is what had become known as the Fed put. But as the chart shows, there was a noticeable distortion for asset prices, with the net worth of US households significantly higher than the level of GDP. But that good fortune for asset owners wasn't replicated by workers, with incomes not having risen commensurately with asset prices, and that's what's resulted in high levels of inequality in today's society. In short, the last regime was one in which the pendulum swung very much towards capital. And I would argue that the secular forces are shifting. The headlines of a stable geopolitical backdrop, abundant labour supply and cheap energy do not to me sound like the taglines that will be used to describe the next several decades. Far from being stable, I would argue the splintering, the splintering geopolitical backdrop supports a view that we are in a new age of inflation volatility. We've enjoyed a long stretch of relative stability in a unipolar world where the US was the global power. The new order is defined by several great powers who are vying for dominance. The US is engaged in three wars currently, a cold war with China, a hot one with Russia, and an energy one with OPEC. Meanwhile, as this chart depicts, the relationship between China and Russia grows stronger. Now, without using this presentation to speculate as to the outcomes, I think the implications are undoubtedly inflationary. At the extreme, war is inflationary, but hoping very much to avoid the worst case, the transition to a multipolar world will also prove ultimately to be more inflationary over the long term. On the labour front, abundant labour supply um, is certainly not in the running as a title for this chart. Uh, here I'm showing the US unemployment going back to the early 20th century. Although a lagging indicator, it's quite remarkable that after so much policy tightening in the US, the labour market remains as tight as it does. In terms of driving forces, we have the large baby boomer generation exiting the workforce, leaving in their footsteps fewer offspring to take on their jobs. And the other significant factor looking ahead, of course, is reshoring. If you think the driving force behind offshoring was to benefit from cheaper labour, it stands to reason that the reversal of this trend will lead to labour costs rising. Furthermore, the political desire to reshore supply chains for strategic reasons will provide incremental demand for labour, but sometimes in areas where the domestic economy lacks the necessary skilled workers due to decades of offshoring. Again, this is likely, I think, to lead to shortages and higher wages over the long run. We then come on to talk about energy. The transition to a low carbon economy is underway. It is a reality, but it's not a quick fix. And in stark contrast to the previous regime where we had positive supply shocks, this one will not be deflationary. We need huge amounts of investment and there is no incremental capacity addition as a result. When thinking about cheap energy being a driving force of deflation, I think it's fair to think of higher energy costs as being a sustaining factor behind inflation over the longer term. 
it's also a significant rewiring of our global economy and it's being driven by policy rather than led by technological advancement. So absent a significant breakthrough of some kind, I think it's very reasonable to expect that energy costs should be higher as we look to replace hydrocarbons. So the key inflationary forces over the longer term are that of geopolitical tension, tight labour markets and the energy transition. And I would argue that the accelerant to all of these is government spending. We saw huge stimulus in response to COVID. And now, remarkably, we're also seeing governments spend to reduce inflation with the Inflation Reduction Act in the US and UK and European governments paying people's energy bills for them. In short, politicians are predictable and they like to get re-elected. The Western governments found the playbook during COVID, which is print and spend, no more austerity. And there's no shortage of problems for governments to aim funds at. As mentioned, the age of disinflation has been a great one to be an asset owner, but it has been much less beneficial for workers as real wages have stagnated. Inequality is a political and social issue, which is at the front and centre of the prevailing narrative. And I think that it will lead to more populist leaders and policies as we look ahead to the future. But this exacerbates what is already a chronic issue. Developed economies have World War II levels of debt to GDP. Now, debt was easy to service when interest rates were on the floor, but how will governments fund themselves if interest rates are much higher for longer? And here we come to the point I made near the start of this presentation around why inflation is all but inevitable. We face a problem in developed markets of too much debt and too little growth. Yes, inflation is public enemy number one at the moment, but could inflation end up being the solution to our problems? It is arguably the least bad solution to too much debt. As long as we can achieve nominal GDP growth, the effect of inflation over the long run will be to erode the debt burden, which of course is fixed in nominal terms. Put another way, I think it's reasonable to expect that the level of interest rates will settle below the level of inflation, otherwise known as financial repression. But what about central bankers who are raising interest rates and doing their very best to fight inflation in the here and now? Central bankers are in a bind. They have competing aims, financial and monetary stability, and the cure for the latter risks undermining the former. The pain of higher interest rates will be felt, not least by governments, bearing in mind the previous slide. And when interest rates truly start to bite and threaten financial stability, we can be reasonably certain which of their objectives will take precedence. I think a useful historical case study for the period we're in now is that of the late 1960s in the US. In 1966, in the face of a housing recession, the Federal Reserve eased policy. That led inflation to rise steadily over several years and required significant policy tightening uh, in 1969, where they raised the federal funds rate by over 400 basis points in under a year. In February 1970, Arthur Burns became Fed chair. With real yields having been at 6% for some time and a recession very much on the cards, he took action to cut interest rates to get ahead of the recession. As we all know now, that proved to be a major overreaction and led to inflation becoming sticky around 4 to 5% throughout the 1970s. But I think there's several learnings that we can take from this. Firstly, that it's very easy to be hawkish in the face of rising inflation when growth is strong and times are good. 
and the failure in the 1970s was not the lack of interest rate increases, but the premature loosening of policy, absent inflation having moderated sufficiently. But I would also argue that that mistake is all but impossible to avoid. We all know inflation reacts with a lag to policy changes, and you can't afford to wait until realized inflation is at your target before you change course. So I think today we risk repeating exactly this scenario. Let's not forget the lived experience of our central bankers is that of the disinflationary era. The same is true also of the voting public. I would say there's simply no political imperative for a deep recession, which is what history tells us is needed to quell inflation. So the drivers of deflation have waned and secular inflationary forces are now in the ascendancy. Governments are carrying World War II levels of debt relative to their GDP. And I would argue there's not the political will to impose a deep recession in order to get inflation under control. So on that basis, what are the implications for asset markets? As this chart shows, the higher CPI is, the lower the equity multiple. And that makes sense. It makes sense that investors should demand more attractive prices in order to compensate them for inflation. However, this data does somewhat fly in the face of the common perception that equities are real assets, ones which benefit from or at least can pass through inflation. And while it may be true operationally that companies can thrive in an inflationary environment, what history tells us is that the price investors are willing to pay for a dollar of future company earnings falls as inflation rises. The current equity market multiple, shown in orange above, is considerably above the trend line, given where US inflation is. This suggests investors have a very high degree of confidence that inflation is coming back down and fast. If they are wrong, we could be in trouble. Another key consideration when thinking about how to invest in a more volatile and inflationary market regime is that of cross-asset correlations. A key correlation which has been a stalwart of the modern portfolio theory is that bonds are a diversifier in a balanced portfolio. What we are showing here is the observed historical correlation between equities and bonds at different levels of inflation. And the findings are that above 2.5% average inflation, equities and bonds become increasingly positively correlated, as we saw play out painfully in 2022. So if I am right to be worried that we could see higher and more persistent inflation in the years to come, there is cause to rethink portfolio strategy. We have seen that equity valuations can suffer in higher inflation regimes and bonds lose some of their diversification benefits. I put it to you that strategic asset allocations and buy and hold strategies are unlikely to deliver in the new inflationary regime. We, I would say an active and unconstrained approach to asset allocation will be crucial to navigating the inflationary journey ahead. So what tools do investors need to dust off in order to flourish in this new regime? I think we need to be more active, a willingness to be tactical within and between asset classes, acknowledging that traditional hedges may be unreliable and being willing to pay for genuine diversification via convex offsets such as derivatives. Be willing to hold cash when the option value is high. And finally, and crucially, swap portfolio optimization strategies in favor of owning real assets.